prioritize your writing. You have to make this an important part of your your life. <laughs> you know, that's why I get up in the mornings and I'm writing and, and making the contributions to the work what I do. But you have to prioritize it. And examples I often give is when you make a doctor's appointment. You don't want to not go to your doctor's appointment. You know, you set that as a priority. And oftentimes when we miss a doctor's appointment, we may have to wait another several weeks or maybe several months. And you don't want to have your writing that way. You want to schedule it so that it is consistent, so that you are uh, giving this back to yourself. And on my calendar, I have it written down, like my writing times. Hi there. Welcome to a very special episode of our podcast, What Are You Going To Do With That?, You are listening to episode number 50 of the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa podcast. My name is Dani and I am a PhD student looking for tips and tricks to complete my research project. And for this 50th episode, we decided to do something special. Instead of a regular talk with an early career researcher or ECR, This time, I'm chatting with an established professor and an editor of an academic journal to talk about everything that has to do with academic writing. So our guest today is Professor Felicia Moore Menza from Teachers College at Columbia University. Felicia is an editor at the Journal of Research in Science Teaching, as she's also known as a scholar mentor through which she supports PhD candidates to complete their dissertation. On her website, thescholarmentor.com, you can find more about how she can help you and learn about her book, Like Words Falling Onto the Page, in which she provides tips on academic writing and the publishing process. But before we go into everything we want to know from Felicia about academic writing, I'd like to invite you all to have a look at our social media accounts on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook with the handle at what to do with that, where the two is spelled with the number two. For more tips and tricks, we also wrote a blog on our website and uploaded videos to our YouTube channel. And while you're at it, don't forget to subscribe and rate us on our favorite podcast app. Then, back to Professor Felicia Moore-Manasse, who has a BSc in Biology and an MSc in Biology and Secondary Education from the universities in North Carolina. She then went on to Florida State University for a PhD in science education, where she focused on professional development and post-structural analysis, stories of African-American science teachers. Felicia continued as a postdoc and visiting professor at Michigan State University and is currently professor of science education and the chair of the Department of Mathematics, Science and Technology at Teachers College at Columbia University. She's also known as the Scholar Mentor, and she has supported, as such, many doctoral students in completing their dissertations, also junior faculty in obtaining tenure and promotion, and she has helped both students and faculty in their writing process and getting published. So, it's fair to say she knows quite a bit about academic writing and publishing, also being an editor at the Journal of Research and Science Teaching, and as the author of the book, like words falling onto the page, demystifying the academic writing and publishing process. And the book is full of tips and tricks and also personal experience with writing and publishing. So welcome to our show, Felicia, and thank you so much for making some time to join us today. How are you? 
Oh, hello, Danny, and thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm very excited to be here because, as you said, I've been living, dreaming, breathing, writing, and publishing for quite some time. So I'm looking forward to talking in more detail with you. Yeah, can't wait. I think it's a great idea for a celebration episode number 50. Um, and to celebrate, as usual, I have my regular amaretto with me. What are you drinking today? So I'm a Southern girl. So in the South, we drink tea, which they call sweet tea. But no, it's not sweet. It's actually an herbal tea okay. that I tend to drink uh, before I teach my classes, actually. And I also do it in preparation for my writing sessions and anything that I do. So that, that dehydration is really important. So I have tea. Nice. It looks like a really big cup, so it will keep you good for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the last week from now, like through class tonight, too. Right. Okay, cheers. Cheers. So even though this is a slightly different episode than usual, I still want to ask you a few short questions to kick off with. And the first one I have prepared is, what does a typical morning of a professor and editor look like? Is it very different for that of an early career researcher? It's probably not that different. And I would say my routines have been different because I took on an administrative role. And so I get up every morning for writing time. So I write from 8.30 to 10 o'clock and I prepare myself for that. So I do a little bit of meditation and kind of like center myself before I start. But I dedicate a daily writing plan for myself. And that has not always been the case. I tend to like to write in large chunks of time. But because of all the responsibilities that I have, I have to be able to figure out, well, how can I do little bursts of time? And so every morning I'm up and I'm writing from 8.30 a.m. until 10 o'clock a.m. And some days I'm able to get an extra hour or two in. Um, and so I've just dedicated my time to be able to do that. So it starts with writing. Is that because you're a morning person? No, I am not a morning oh. person at all. And so that's something that I had to develop in myself. I'm only, I've only been doing this for the, maybe for the past couple of months. Okay. But no, I'm much more of a night evening person because of all the roles and responsibilities that I've taken on. Being a journal editor, being a department chair, being a faculty member, it's taking up a lot of time and energy. And so I don't have that energy that I had late at night when I was usually writing. So why not do it in the morning? So I've been challenging myself and actually have a writing um, partner that I just uh, started writing, not writing with her, but encouraging one of my faculty colleagues because she asked me about my writing. I said, well, you know, I'm doing something different. I'm writing and getting up early in the mornings to write. Would you like to join me? And she, we text each other to say, we're sitting down for our writing session. So 8.30, we're, we're doing it. And then we would text each other to say what we finished. And so I've actually been using that process for years mm -hmm. with my doctoral students and also with junior faculty because one of the major tips that I have is that you have to find the time to write and you have to have a dedicated time to be able to do that. And you can change that um, at what time in the day you do that as well. Yeah, you can change it. <laughs> you can change it. So, um, But I typically in my early career, I used to use Monday as my writing day. Basically, the, the entire day I would block it off on my calendar And because I like long chunks of time, I was reading, I was writing, I was doing other kinds of things. And Monday was the day. It would else, it would spill over maybe into Fridays, like I would do a Friday afternoon or something like that. And Saturday sometimes, but um, not like this. I, I just can't manage it without having to do it every day. And so I still keep 
all those days. But I also have rest time. So it's like I, I'm a person of faith and the Lord rested on the seventh day. So Sundays I don't do any work or I do very little work just so that I can re-energize mm-hmm. myself for the, for the rest of the week. So if I'm going full speed on Monday through Saturday, I surely can take some time to rest. And I even encourage my students and other junior scholars and writers to be able to do that. You cannot go full blast seven days a week you know, for the entire month or entire year without taking some time to rest. I think that's that's very true. Um, and it always reminds me of this uh, story that I read about the Romans having described the people in the Holy Land as the, who were resting, Jews then who were resting on the seventh day, um, which the Romans didn't know at the time about. They didn't understand why all of a sudden for a full day no one was doing nothing. And they called it a miracle. Because they also kind of learned to understand that this has made the people also more productive at the end of the week mm-hmm. or at the beginning of the next week, basically. So I really like that. It does make you more productive. A student yesterday, as a matter of fact, was working on her dissertation. She's waiting to send me a draft of her dissertation. And she was saying how she stayed up late the night before and she's really trying to work hard. I said, OK, for today, take the day off. And she's like, take the day off. I get love for the text message. And then this morning she texted me. She said, I did take the day off and I feel so much more energized. So it doesn't have to be on a Sunday, but it has to be a day of the week where you're able to do other kinds of things to give your mind time to rest because it can't go 24 seven. We think it can. And when you actually take that time to rest, you do feel more uh, renewed and rejuvenated. So you can be more productive. Sounds good. Uh, Talking about that productivity, uh, we get to my second question, which is what superpower would come in handy for a journal editor? Oh my gosh, that's a really great question. What superpower do I have (laughs) as an editor? Well, you know, I think it's the same superpower I probably have in general, and and it's just to be supportive. So I think as a journal editor, when manuscripts come across and we're able to help the scholar to move to the next point... It's really being um, supportive of their work and their ideas and helping them to get their ideas out. And I think that's what we all have great ideas, but there is a certain formula you have to follow to be able to write and to get published. And I love helping doctor students and junior faculty with that because they have really great ideas. But it's how do you put it in that formula for writing and getting published, the structure of an article, what goes into each sections of an article. Same with doctoral students, what goes into the sections of your dissertation? How do you make your ideas flow? And I, and I think that's my superpower. I think I do a really mm-hmm. good job of, of helping students to do that. I think that's why I have been successful with getting so many students completed. It's like the words on the page, um, how do we make good stories out of that? And how do you share the stories from the data that you've collected. What do you want us to know? And it's a writing process that can be learned. It's a skill that can be learned. So I think that's what my superpower is. That's good news that it can be learned. <laughs> we hope to learn yes, more today. Yes. And it's also a great superpower, uh, being supportive. That's really great. Okay, going from there, the last short question that I have is, what do you very often see in a first draft and really wish people would just stop doing? I think it goes with what I just mentioned. I mean, there is a certain formula that you have for writing, but I see sometimes that the formula can also be very distracting. I'm working with a scholar now 
and she has those certain sections of her of her manuscript that are there, but it's not really flowing like I think it should flow. And it's not really needing the same. She's doing narrative to be a little bit more specific. So she's doing narrative and she's using the researcher is whatever or the researcher, whatever. And I said, aren't you the researcher? Right. You can use a personal pronoun of I. And so that's the one that really gets me. It's like they're being very formulaic in this idea of academic writing that they forget that you are the researcher, that you're the person that's doing this work. And I encourage people to use the I. It makes us the writing more personal and it gives that tone of story when you're trying to say it. So definitely that like the researcher, I'm like, who's the researcher? <laughs> like you're the researcher. So please use the personal pronoun I. You know, whatever you can. I like that. I'll keep that in mind. Sometimes I do notice that I'm struggling to like wiggle my way around that word, but maybe I don't have to always. No, you don't. All right, cool. So we already got a few tips from you just with these short questions. So let's see what else we can get when we get into the deeper questions about academic writing. And I wanted to start with your book which is called Like Words Falling Onto the Page. Why did you decide to write that book? Oh, my goodness. So two main reasons for writing the book is uh, my students often said, Dr. Missa, why don't you write a book? When are you going to write a book? And I often said, well, what kind of book should I write? <laughs> and I started really thinking about it. And it was like, you should write a book like on qualitative research methods. And I'm like, that's a big, that's a huge book. But I thought, well, why don't I give advice about how to write? And because I had been writing for so long and have been working with doctor students and junior faculty so much around the writing process, I thought this would be the ideal reason to be able to write a book. And then the other one is that we often don't share the writing and publishing process. You know, that's why I say demystifying it. You know, I find so many students and faculty just not knowing the process because nobody told them. And I felt like, I can tell you, and it would make the process a lot easier for you. You don't have to struggle through like I did. No, people didn't tell me. And I think you don't have to struggle through this as a process. And so I wrote the, I wrote the book for junior faculty and for doctor students to know the process and to have in a fun, light, light way. And I also did it, did it as a challenge to my writing process because, again, I've been writing these academic articles and manuscripts and book chapters and everything. I wanted to... Wanted to grow myself in terms of the writing, like challenge myself in how I was writing. So it's very lighthearted. It's not very academically based. Uh, it's got stories in there, as you mentioned in the introduction, like my experiences in writing and my process of coming to what I do as a writer. And I wanted to think in the preface of the book, I write it as if a student came to me at, during office hours. And that's the personal contact that I'm able to get with students when they literally come to my office and we're able to sit down and talk and have a conversation. I want this text to seem like anybody who picked it up was coming to Dr. Mintz's office hours for her to talk with them about their writing. And so I've had students to be on to read it and say, it's, it sounds just like that. It, it's really like my voice. Okay. And so those were the main reasons to, of doing it. It's like, how do I give this information to students to demystify the process and at the same time challenge my way of writing? That's very interesting. And I think it's a great idea because um, me personally, I've also struggled with... Um, what a PhD actually entails, what it means to be doing a PhD, what steps you could be taking or, you know, to have a research plan of the next few years of your life and how you're going to tackle it. 
and now I'm getting into the stage of having to write the actual dissertation. But I also really didn't have an idea of what needs to be in the dissertation. I mean, obviously, there's a literature review, there's a methodology, there's something about results, but how do we connect all of these things? And what is more important than the other? And how long does every part have to be? Things like that, very basic things that no one had really told me about. And I wasn't sure who to ask because I'm currently, for example, I'm staying in a different country than where my university is, so I'm also more mm -hmm. distant from my supervisor, so it's harder to reach. Um, and I think it's something that especially people who are first-generation PhD students, right, um, uh, struggle with because they don't know who to ask and they don't know where to find the information. Um, was that something that you also struggled with then? I did a little bit, Danny. Uh, I was um, the only black student at the time of my cohort when I was in my doctoral program. And though I did feel supported in some ways, like I could go to my advisor to talk with her, I, I didn't have kind of like that community where I could come together and ask a whole lot of questions, especially that could be related to what I was going through as a Black doctoral student. And so I did find other Black students on campus that were not in my program or my um, or my department. Well, actually, one was in my department, but, um, but it was being able to bring together like-minded people for us to support each other. But through the process of doing that, I paid attention, actually, to how people were doing their presentations. I would read journal articles and pay attention to the structure of the articles and really try to study what goes in the introduction, what and how do they constr uh, construct their literature review. Uh, theoretical frameworks were always very hard, and, so, and I think they're still very hard mm -hmm. for lots of people. But um, but one of the things I would do is just read multiple, t multiple articles on the theoretical framework or go to the original sources of where frameworks came from. Okay. Um, so those were the ways that I can really get a great understanding of what the theory is and then go back and read the articles and see how people were applying the theory. And so it was just a lot of that work up front of strategies that I created for myself that I used and I thought were helpful. And then when I started teaching qualitative methods and working with my doctoral students, I would have them to do the same exercises that I did or that I even continue to do now. And it made it a lot easier to understand the structure of an article, okay. understand what theory is and how people are using theory, how to go to a conference. I, I jokingly tell them, I said, I can tell in the first two minutes if people are going to run out of time for their conference. And so we would go and they would just sit to me and I, and I would do something like this. That means like this person is not going to do it like, like, you know, like this one or whatever. And so we had these hidden coals and they would always look at me and I'd be like, and they were like, she's right. She's right. You know, so I've told them what the secret is, you know, when you go to a conference to present that people want to know your findings. They want to know your, um, your methodology section. So don't spend so much time on your introduction. People set up so much time trying to go into the study, like the background of the study, the literature review of the study. And, and you know, they spend so much time at the beginning, but people really want to know, okay, what was your question? How did you answer your question? What did you find? And what's the implications of your finding? So it's much more of the end of your paper when you go to a conference. And there are times when I felt like I had a whole lot to say with my findings. And I actually started with the research question. I said, this is my research question. These are things I'm curious about. And then I intertwined the literature review 
with why I came to that question. And then I'm also able to think about the theory as I talk about my findings. So there are several different ways to be able to do a conference presentation, but oftentimes people are going to go very formulaic. This is the intro. This is the literature review. This is a theoretical framework here by question, you know, and it becomes very dry. So when you go to a conference, you're just kind of sitting there waiting for people to get to their findings and, you you know, uh, and, and it's the same structure. So, even encouraging uh, people to think differently about when you go to a conference, but it's all there. So how do you tell a good story about your data? It's like, what do you want is what I tell Like, how do you tell the story and all these other parts they would get to? And so a conference presentation is also an introduction to your, to your work. So you can't say everything, just like a dissertation. You can't say everything in a dissertation. Um, and so you give a little bit of a taste of your study to encourage people to ask you for your paper or maybe to engage with you a little bit more around the work that you're doing. So it's only a very short period of time that you have to share your work, but you want people to be invested in your work on a long-term basis by reading your paper or, you know, maybe inviting you to come and do another talk somewhere else, you know? So um, those are another strategies <laughs> I guess Danny to think about uh, for conferences and for papers and learning about the process. So it is not that demystifying way that you, go through writing and publishing. That's interesting. So it is very important to keep in mind what the goal is of the story you're telling, whether that is written or in a presentation at a conference. Yes, yes. All right. Uh, Regarding the book, what is the most important message that you're trying to convey? (laughs) Well, throughout the book, it's structured around four what I call scholar actions. And these are the four things that I did when I was a doctoral student. And these are the four things I continue to do now as a faculty member and as an administrator. So I'm going to share the four tips with you or four scholar okay, actions great. that I talk about. And then I can, you know, talk even a little bit more detail about it. And I've kind of sort of shared a little bit of them already. But the first one is prioritize your writing. Okay. As I said before, like you have to make this an important part of your your life. <laughs> you know, that's why I give up in the borders and I'm writing and, and making the contributions to the work what I'll do, but you have to prioritize it. And the examples I often give is when you make a doctor's appointment, you don't want to not go to your doctor's appointment. You know, you set that as a priority. And oftentimes when we miss a doctor's appointment, may, we may have to wait another several weeks or maybe a, several months. And you don't want to have your writing that way. You want to schedule it so that it is consistent so that you or uh, giving this back to yourself. And on my calendar, I have it written down, like my writing times. Um, I write I write in different color inks, and so it happens to be green. <laughs> and okay. so I have that on my calendar with the times marked out. And then sometimes even when I look at my calendar and notice it for the week, I try to see, oh, are there other times that I might be able to schedule some, some additional writing time? And I put that on my calendar too. Cool. So my other one is to develop your process. And what I mean by developing your process is, you know, when you read other people's work, you say, oh, I wish I could write like that person. Oh, they, you know, it's just a beautiful writing or oh, I, I want to be able to use these big words. Like mm-hmm. that's their process. Get your process. And okay. so <laughs> I tell students, I tell students and junior faculty, you know, what and how can you express yourself? Yes, you can read other scholars and you can be inspired by their work and their writing. But the only way you're going to develop your process is that you're going to have to write. Your voice is going to have to come out. I think that I had a friend one time who told me, she said, wouldn't it look silly 
if you had your head on somebody else's body. And so writing is like that. It's like you can't go and take your head and put it on somebody else's body of work. You need to develop your own body of work and it's going to come from your writing. What do you have to say? Uh, So developing your own process. The third one is to set goals and deadlines. Uh, I have a goal and deadline for everything that I do, and it's on my calendar. That's how important my okay. calendar is. It's got all in kinds of colors. things on my calendar in different colors, yes, <laughs> so that I can so that I can see them. But you know, the thing about setting goals and deadlines is that you want to do them before they are due. And an example that I give for my students is when we have a conference that's due. Say the conference, the proposal is due on. Let's just take this month. This is March. Say a conference is due. The proposals are due on March the fifteenth. Mm-hmm. I tell my students it's due March the tenth. Okay. I said, but it said it's like no, it's due March the tenth. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so getting into the habit of setting goals and deadlines before things are actually due. So you're not rushed. Life could happen. All kinds of things can happen. So it gives right. you a cushion of a day or two before things are actually done. And so when you get it done, go ahead and send it out. So, But you have to set those goals to be able to do that. Know when different projects are due and prioritize those different projects also at the same time. And then the fourth one is to keep track of your writing and your thinking. And I have several notebooks all over the place, it seems like. But I have notebooks where I keep my writing. Um, the things I'm thinking about, uh, if there's a connection to a literature or something that I'll be rewriting, I just happen to read it. I put it somewhere so I can come back to it later. And um, one of the things that was very surprising to me as a doctoral student, I had been writing and journaling. And when it was time for me to do my dissertation, I went back and I'm like, oh, here are all my ideas right in front of me. So this is what I've been thinking about for like the past year. And I was able to put the pieces back together to come up with what I want to do for my dissertation. So this whole idea of writing your ideas down and thinking about it and, you know, putting the pieces together is truly important to be able to do that. And you can also do it electronically. So I use OneNote. That's become my new organizing friend. And so I had different tabs where I'm able to put articles there. I'm able to write my notes down and my thoughts about that. So just having something to organize your ideas and keep your thinking down. So I call those four things that I just mentioned to you, my scholar mentor actions that I do. So my scholar actions for productivity, because I do them and they're consistent in my practice of writing. Scholar actions. I like that. How you say that? Yeah, not scholar actions, yes. <laughs> and it's interesting because you said you write things down in your calendar in different colors, pen. Um, but when you were talking about keeping track of your writing and thinking, the fourth part, I realized that I I have a lot of notebooks. I like writing things by yes. hand when I'm working on the computer with other things. And each notebook has a different color. And I actually mm-hmm. remember which one is the oldest and which one is the newest by its color. Mm-hmm. so without realizing that that is a scholar action i actually already did something similar so that's yes nice yes and go back to your notes right because <laughs> sometimes mm-hmm. oh, yes. i you know you'll write your notes and you like you don't go back to them like oh yeah i was thinking about this a year ago and then you can also see the growth in your writing the growth in your thinking i should say through your writing and so yeah go back and look at that and continue to think and conceptualize and figure out where your understandings are coming from because now you kept a tr- you've kept track of that you have it in your different notebooks and um yeah that's a really great practice to maintain all right so we talked about your books 
and the scholar actions, which has been very helpful. Uh, but now I really want to get into the actual academic writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we think about what it really is one has to know as a graduate student or a junior faculty about academic writing, what are important things to keep in mind? Yes, and I want to go back to what I said a little bit earlier because it's something that you can learn. Academic writing is something that you can learn. And um, there is a structure to it. And in my book, to go back to that as well, it's, it's, it's laid out for, for those who want to read. It's laid out what goes into each one of those different sections. So for academic writing, it really is a master of taking theory and being able to write about it, taking research and data, analyzing it and being able to write about it. After you analyze it, how do you talk about it? So it is a process that you can go through. But I think one of the uh, things that often people do with trying to do academic writing, they think it's a linear process and it's not. So even starting out writing an article, even writing a dissertation, I do encourage people to have those different sections available. So literally start a paper and put those different sections there. But when you write... If you have a thought, go to that section of the paper. Because most people tend to think they're going to start with their introduction. Everything's going to flow from the introduction. From the introduction, it's going to flow to their literature review. They already know what the literature they're going to have. And then it's going to flow into their methods. Okay, this is what I did. This is how I collected the data. This is who I collected it from. They do the analysis. And now it's time to go to their findings. And when you start writing up your findings, you realize, oh, I think I need some literature to help me to explain whatever I'm looking at. Or right. maybe I should look at a, a different theoretical framework. But they feel like, but I've already written those sections. Like, no, you're going to have to go back to it. So it's an iterative process that your data and your theories and your literature review all speak together. And then you go back to your introduction. You start to say, oh, okay, this idea came up. Now, now let me go and foreground it in my introduction. Uh, and so it's all over the place. And even the implications, sometimes I tend to think about implications more so than what my actual findings are. And so I immediately go to the implications section and I type down you know, the implications of what this work is about and see if it's going to match later. And then you read it straight through. So in the publishing process, people tend, you know, they'll read a published paper and they're like, oh, everything fits together. Oh, everything was flowing. Mm-hmm. But they don't know what that paper looked like before it got, you know, before it went to the review process. And it did not look that way. It did not look like that before the process. And so being able to see the academic writing is an iterative, iterative process that you work at all the sections at the same time as it flows through one complete study or one complete paper or one complete article uh, and just asking yourself those different kinds of questions at each moment as you're writing to get the complete manuscript or article. All right. So you've mentioned quite a few things already that basically come down to to one thing, right? Like the structure of the article and not being too nervous about uh, going back and forth different sections, um, which is okay. And sometimes you can also start writing it, not really be able to move on with it, do other things, <laughs> and then get back to it later, right? Yes. Well, another thing is, uh, and this came up in one of my classes last week, actually, with my doctoral students. Okay. And it was saying, when do you know you've read enough? Or, you know, yeah. they keep reading a lot. And I said, stop reading and start writing. So 
it goes back to the idea of the process of your own process. Like you can't have all these ideas in your head or all these ideas in your journal without actually sitting down and actually trying to write the structure of the academic paper. Eventually it's going to have to get there. And sometimes mm-hmm. I think people wait too late because they're thinking in their mind, it has to be said perfectly. I have to know everything I need to say in each one of the different sections. But again, the process is, it's going to flow. It's going to inform one. It's going to form the different sections are going to inform each other. So go ahead and start. If you have your methods already laid out, go ahead and start your method section and start writing about that because it's going to give you some insights about what your findings are going to look like. So just do it. (laughs) You know, it's like stop reading. (laughs) You know, research is going to always be there. Stop reading and start writing and putting your ideas down. Get at it. All right. Um, Talking about that, though, is it very common for your doctoral students uh, to struggle with the writing process and also studying more generally with things like a writer's block or procrastination or maybe because of lack of confidence? And how do you help them overcome those things? Yes, all of those things everybody struggles with. But I think it's, it's the idea of looking at a blank piece of paper. Like you have all these ideas and you're just trying to figure out like how to get them out. And again, I think people are still struggling with having to say it perfectly. Like the sentences all have to be perfect. It all has to be in alignment, but it doesn't. That's what editing is for. That's what revision (laughs) is for. So if once you get it down on the paper, then you're able to move things around. Otherwise, it is a blank piece of paper, which can be very frightening. And uh, but you have to start. So there's actually a strategy that I have for that. Uh, you know, all those articles you've been reading with all those highlights that you have in your articles that you have. You now I call this starting with quotes. So like, pick two quotes, put those on your paper and then write about what do these quotes mean? Why did you highlight those quotes? And again, it's like getting your voice out there for you to explain why this quote was important and then make connections to other pieces. And then let's kind of like structure it that way. But yes, we all have writer's block. We're all afraid to get our voice out there or to say something or we think it's going to be wrong or uh, we didn't get it quite right, but you have to get it out there. And I tell them that it's not going to be perfect. Again, that's what the process of writing is. That's what the process of peer review is. It's not going to be perfect. Uh, Go ahead and send it to me so so that you can get some feedback. Otherwise, you're just holding on to something and you're holding yourself to um, even more stress because you're not getting the feedback that you need that's going to move you further along. So, yeah, I just say write. You just have to write. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It keeps going back to that. Um, yes. I have to say that I have quite a few uh, colleagues that I've noticed are much more a perfectionist than me. And that maybe even it's a trait that a lot of people in academia have. Like it's really everywhere, <laughs> much more than I've seen in other places where I'm at. And I feel like a little bit of the odd one out. But I feel like because they're perfectionists, it's so much harder for them to then say, okay, this is good enough. I'm going to send it out to someone to have it peer reviewed or edited or anything like that. So what yeah. would you say to a perfectionist like that? Yeah, I've told people A minus is okay. Okay. <laughs> you know, that perfectionists tend to want to have an A, like A minus is okay. Uh, again, because if you're holding on to it and you're not sending it out to get feedback, you're thinking you're trying to produce this something that's extremely perfect. You know, you're trying to get it perfect, you're trying to get it right. 
And then when it goes out and you get the feedback and you see how, you know, what's what's wrong with it, so to speak, you get all this additional feedback to improve it. I have seen it where it's made people even more um, stressed because they really thought they was working so hard to get this perfect manuscript. And then they get all this feedback and they say, then I'm not as good as I thought I was or whatever. And so, but it should be looked at, no, it's just telling you and helping you to be able to prefer, perfect the academic writing process. But you can't hold on to it thinking you to be the perfectionist because it's not going to be perfect. Just tell my student, oh, it's not going to be perfect. <laughs> you know, just let, just go ahead and like, oh, no, it's not going to be perfect. Uh, yes, I'm going to have to give you some feedback on it and for them to get used to that. And I think when, when people work with me, I work with my students, they know that I'm going to be getting them something that's good, that I'm not telling them to belittle them or to make them feel bad. It's right. like, no, it's here to improve your writing. It's here to improve the ideas and how do you get your ideas out on paper. It's to improve your learning about what this academic writing process is all about. So they look at it more so as love. I had a, a, a colleague of mine, she said, feedback is love. So when people are giving you feedback, now look at it in that way. Um, even in the review process, you can get very nasty review and comments from people. Uh, mm-hmm. Just turn that back around and say, okay, this was hard love. <laughs> you know, so how can I go back and improve what it is that I have? Because it's all about the process of improving. So right. to be able to look at it in that way. I think that's very good advice. You don't have to be perfect and it's a process again well the thing is it is not going to be perfect how about that it's not going to be perfect right <laughs> you know it could be like I'm I'm, re- I'm working with the author now it's it's a good document I told her I said oh it's it's, it's got it's a good document but I have so much feedback for her and it's going to improve it once she gets to the next you know once she goes through the revision process so it's really there to help and to improve great okay so when a student or an ECR is ready to let go of their let go to to hand it in to submit a paper or a dissertation, um, let's talk about publishing. Actually, then yes, where does one go? Where does one publish? How do you find out what journal fits your work best? Okay, so often you can start with the journals where you are already reading. So those articles that you're reading in your courses. Those are the journals that could be potential places for your work because you're already making connections with the articles that you're pulling from there to read that connects to your work. So those would be the first places to go to. Okay. Um, you can also consider journals that are more practitioner based. So, so, you know, often I'm in the area of science teacher education. So articles that maybe teachers are going to be reading could be good places for your work. You can also think about the policies and the implications of their work. So a policy-related journal. So there are so many different journals out there, and there are some that are coming up, seem like every month there's a new journal that's coming out. So those will be probably the first places that I would think about. Uh, also, the professors that you have, that you are taking classes with, where are they publishing their work? So those are places to probably start to start with. Okay, that last one I didn't hear about yet, so that was a very good one for me. <laughs> Okay. Um, and then also to talk a little bit about the ranking of a journal, uh, right? And also that we're always talking about publish or perish. A, a little bit of background should maybe be mentioned. Like the ranking system used to be to make sense, to be logical, because before the internet, before everyone had access to it, um, you would have a limited 
search resource in the library um, and you would use this ranking to find out where the most interesting and relevant work is. But now everything is available online. You just go to Google Scholar and you could basically get anything that has ever been out there that anyone ever wrote down. So why should an ECR really still care for ranking or a journal for that matter? Yeah, and I think this is important to know your field. Um, so they'll probably have various listeners who are in different fields of education or the social sciences or something related is getting to know your field and what your field requires. So I'm, again, I'm in the context of science education. So I have my students to know all the journals that are in science education, uh, the ones that are top tier. And I'm actually a co-editor of one of the top tier journals mm -hmm. in my field. But they also know the practitioner journals. They know other journals that relate it. Because of being in a science field connected to science, technology, engineering, mathematics. So what are the science and technology journals? What are the science and um, the learning sciences journals? So other journals that are related within the field and know where they fit. Now, one of the things I have learned, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but oftentimes doctoral students in, um, are not ready for top tier type journals. And that's, again, because they're trying to find their voice. They're trying to learn the academic structure. You know, they're trying to do all of that. And it's actually really hard to get in a top tier journal. And I remember as a junior faculty, I submitted to a journal and it didn't even go out for review. It was so bad, <laughs> you know, so uh -huh. but, you know, and having to to submit to journals at that particular level, it's like it takes a lot of um, mentorship a lot of advisement to be able to do that. And so oftentimes doctoral students and some, you know, sometimes junior faculty as well don't have that mentorship to be able to mm -hmm. do that. But by the time you start writing in other tier journals and getting your voice, you feel a little bit more confident to say, yes, I can aim for a top tier journal. I can do that. Okay. And so being a journal editor, we often do get manuscripts that are not uh, ready for the journal at that level. And I'm able to give feedback to the authors about what their what their manuscript looks like. And so some, we are able to do that before it's actually sent out and it gives them an opportunity to go back and do some revision to that work before we send it out. Uh, but if it does go out and it's still not ready, they would have gotten really great feedback from our reviewers and from our associate mm -hmm. editors and also from our editors. And so you will get all that good feedback that you should listen to and go back and revise your manuscript I teach people that uh, a rejection means revise and resubmit, which yeah. means you take the feedback and you go back and you revise your manuscript and you send it to somewhere else. And again, knowing what these other journals are so that you can have a second place to be able to put your work. And so all of that matters in terms of thinking about who is your audience? Who are you going to send this information to your work and your studies to and knowing where it's going to fit? in a particular journal, but aiming high, you know, I, I do tell people to aim high in terms of your writing process and what you want to say. But if you feel that it's not quite there, then there are other journals that make it, take it as you continue to develop your voice and your writing. Right. Um, so you mentioned a little bit already about how sometimes you, I guess, not just sometimes, but you also often receive uh, manuscripts that are not there yet for the uh, top journal that you're working for um, but you do want to try and give them feedback so do you think that most editors like you but also in other journals 
uh, understands or care even for the importance of publishing in a high-ranked journal for the academic career of an ECR. Because if you would, nowadays, they always say, if you finish your PhD and you don't have an important publication yet, it's really hard to get into a postdoc position and to climb up the ladder. Right. Um, and again, I think this is where not only will the journal editors, but it really does put it back on your advisors or your supervisors to help to support you to do that. And I can't really say if journal editors do this or not, or, um, you know, they may not. And I can't really say to, to with full surety um, either about faculty members, but I know that this is something that I do with the students that I work with, you know, helping them in the structure of their, uh, of their dissertations to write in the process of submitting something out of their dissertation. So really mentoring them at this particular level about that and what it looks like and, you know, talking with them about the page limits, talking about the audience, talking about, you know, all those different things that that they need to know if they're going to submit their work to a journal. And, uh, and now I, and getting that now why they have me as a, a advisor so that when they go get into their faculty roles and positions, they already know something. Again, I think that's the importance I have in the book is that it lays it out for them in that preparation stage. As again, that's why I wrote it for doctoral students and junior faculty, because I also know a lot of junior faculty don't know that. They don't have the mentorship. They did not get good mentorship as a um, doctoral student. And now they find themselves in these positions and that they have to, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, publish or perish, you know? And so I, I, I kind of think about not so much as a publish or perish kind of paradigm, but just say, how do I get good work out there? How can I be passionate mm-hmm. about my work and I want to share it with people? I never really felt that idea of a publish or perish because like, I just wanted to write and get my stuff out. <laughs> you know, I wanted right. to be able to inform and transform and change the world. And I, and I thought doing this, you know, cause this is what we do at that, at that level that that's what I had to do. That's what I needed to do. And so it was always fun for me to write. It was a joy to write. Not to say that I didn't have challenges. There were moments where too, mm-hmm. we talked about earlier, like, okay, what do I say? How do I say it? Where do I start? Like, do I have anything to say? But I just start writing and put it on the page. And so it is important for us to prepare our doctor students and junior faculty and postdocs as well for the preparation to be able to write and to publish. But you have to know how to do that. And the book will share with you how to do that if you have not gotten that from somebody else. Right. Okay. It's interesting to hear um, that that system of ranking and, and publishing um, doesn't only lie with journals, right? And uh, that there's not that many that are high ranked and that there's simply so much coming out trying to get published that there's no space for it. But that is also something that is in the faculty and that professors and teaching staff and lecturers can also support and mentor students, doctoral students and, and postdocs to get to that point where their work will be good enough to be structured in such a way that it fits in a top journal. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. Yeah. But you know, there are journals that are coming out too that are a little bit more creative, like journals that want you to share excerpts of interviews or the formatting is slightly different. But I think what happens with those is they're not, I mean, they're coming out now, and so they don't have the reputation or a longer reputation. Again, that is also plays into the idea of the ranking. Like if a journal has been around for a long period of time and the it has kind of established itself as a good journal with good work in it, 
you know, those journals that are just now coming out may not have that kind of a reputation to stand on, but it has to start somewhere, you know, and, and again, I think for early scholars is to initially get it out there so that you are sharing your work and you're developing that writing voice that eventually you're able to advance your work towards higher tier journals. Um, I also had this idea of supporting one another. So getting other doctoral students or other junior faculty together and to write and share that resource together for collaborative writing to be able to submit to a journal is oftentimes the lone author, you know, that uh, is not as successful in the early stages because but when you have a writing group or writing team or two people working together, you bring the, both strengths of the authors together. And that may, um, being able to have that support in that way to be able to get their work out. But so developing writing teams, I had my students collaborating together. I encouraged them to write together. And then the role of the advisor can come at the end. I think they've written together and supported one another. Then you can come in. Then how do you support them as a group? looking at their writing and giving them feedback and then helping them to move on to the next level of getting their work published. Would you briefly care to say something about, as an editor, but also as someone who uh, supports so many doctoral students, about worth the worth of paying for a publication for open access? Yeah, that's still a very tricky process, right? Oh my gosh, there's so many implications for that. Uh, definitely in favor of open access because it does make your work much widely available. Right. But you have to pay for it, right? And oftentimes scholars don't have money to pay for their um, to pay for their work to get out. But now we're also going to a model where eventually it may be everybody may have to pay for it. In some ways, there's some payment somewhere. You know, eventually there's going to be some payment somewhere. But I think now it's moving towards the public and market that most authors might have to start paying for their work to get published. And it certainly has implications for scholars who are going up. So if they're going, I'm going up and say in terms of tenure and promotion, that they may have more because they may have had money or their institution was able to pay for them to have open access or to have other kinds of, of ways to pay to get their publishing out there. Yeah. And so those kinds of things are going to have to be, have to be discussed at the institutional level for institutions to think about what does that mean in this publishing landscape where scholars are having to pay and may not have have to pay, or institutions who are, are smaller may not have the money and the funding sources to be able to help their scholars or junior faculty to be able to do that. So I would imagine in the coming years that this is going to be a point of conversation for many people. Right. So we'll see what happens. Yes, we'll have to see. Yes, yes. Hopefully not too near. <laughs> we'll see about it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. All right. Um, I have a few more questions about what the expectations are of journals and editors. For example, what is the importance of a catchy title or opening sentence or the importance of the abstract? Um, it doesn't have to have a catchy title. Okay. But, <laughs> you know, uh, if you if you want to play around with a title, you know, to be catchy, I think that's good. Uh, I think in my field, you know, we're science, and so sometimes we don't have as many catchy titles or anything mm -hmm. like that. But uh, often, you know, it, it does pull your eye to it when you do see a catchy title. So 
let it be catchy in a good way, you know. Um, but what's going to draw people in, I think, is also going to be really important around your abstract. Your abstract is that little miniature commercial to your work. Mm-hmm. And so you want to have as much detail in whatever number of words that an abstract can have for for different journals. Sometimes they're, you know, extremely short and sometimes they're a little bit longer. So you have to figure out what you're going to say in that abstract that's going to uh, get people to be able to read and engage. And so um, it can be done in different ways. And even in the introduction to your paper, sometimes people put a quote that may be meaningful related to the um, to the work. Uh, it could be a statistic that you start off with. So it could be anything, but I think it is important to write a really great abstract that's going to summarize the paper that people will want to read it much more in detail. Did you write something about abstracts in your book as well? I think there might be something about abstracts in there. Okay. Yeah. So we'll have a look. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Okay. Um, And then what criteria apply to a publishable article for you? Are you looking necessarily for only innovative research methods or hot topics in the field at the moment? Um, No. I'm looking for what the author or authors would write about that's an interesting question of you know a curious question they have about the field that is in conversation with the field uh that's going to push the field you know uh that's going to push us to think about whatever that particular question is or have you been able to think about a question we've been trying to answer for so many years, but now you have a new perspective on it. So not necessarily innovation of it, but how do you think differently about something that we have been thinking about for a number of years? Um, Are you introducing research with participants and voices that we have not heard before around, again, a question that's very curious for the field? So it doesn't have to be something that's too remarkable in some ways, but something that really is going to contribute to our understanding contribute to our knowledge around a particular issue. All right. That sounds good. So if I don't have a hot topic or a very current one, I could still make it work. <laughs> you can still make it work. Yes. Okay. Yes. But we do want you to be in conversation with what things are going on, but it doesn't have to be a hot topic. You know, sometimes that, that even the connotation of a hot topic is like it's hot for the minute and then it's gone. You right. want to be able to have an enduring line of research that you're building upon. Uh, and even as, maybe the hot topics come and go that your work can touch upon the longevity of what it is that we're trying to know within our particular field. What about publishing research that did not actually result in something maybe too interesting, right? Some people claim that non-findings are also findings and that they need to be made available so that other scholars don't do the same thing just to find out again that it wasn't what they hoped it was going to be. Right. So, yes, you want to be able to tell the story of what it is that you did that you did not find what you were anticipating. But how does it push our understanding even more? So, yeah, there there's opportunities to publish work that unintended outcomes, maybe, of what you were looking for. And, and to be honest, as a researcher, to be able to put that out there for people. Uh, and it's also going to be... Uh, so when you go through the review process, you're going to have reviewers. And so your reviewers are the ones that you pretty much have to convince. Like, is this work, mm-hmm. you know, uh, something that the field of you know, other other researchers will want to read? But also in the in the role of the co-editor, we have something to say as well. 
Uh, so maybe a manuscript didn't quite have everything it needed to have, but we felt and saw some nuggets in this work and said, okay, you know what, let the authors revise and resubmit. And we've given them feedback about what it is that we want them to make their revisions on and see if they, you know, give them another opportunity to make the changes and again, to improve it because we see that there's something there that will benefit the field. And so we can, um, but we have such great associate editors and reviewers in our journal, but very rarely do we override what somebody has said, but it's, it's a, it's an opportunity to be able to look at the work that the person has presented and give them another opportunity to, to express themselves. And sometimes it has to do with not having, um, uh, not having a theoretical framework that was used powerfully in the work or they, you know, started off with an idea, but it ended up in another direction. Like we, we found this actually point really compelling, not right about that one. This one seems a little bit more tangential to what you really want to say. So those kinds of things happen in the review process to have a strong contribution to be able to make. Yes. The last thing that I wanted to follow up on is how does an editor of a journal check that the research and its outcomes are not flawed or have been cheated? We don't necessarily do that. And and okay. that's what the review process is to do. It's like we have the reviewers that are going to review and we want reviewers who know the field, who have done some research themselves and can actually find, or not necessarily find, can actually assess you know, what work is there. And I think as a, as a writer, you don't want to be able to think it in that way as a writer or a researcher that we're going to ask those kinds of questions to get at what you have done in terms of your methods and your methodologies and asking those critical questions about the process that you went through, that's going to lead to those findings and also to those additional implications that you have for your work. So we're not looking for things to be wrong, but you right. know, if there are some things that, that are going to come up that have fallen short how do you account for that? You know, looking at the uh, reliability or the validity of the things that you're saying, how can we assess that? What if it's a quantitative, qualitative, or mixed methods kind of a study? Our reviewers are going to put that forth. And then at the next level, when it comes back from the reviewers, then the associate editors are going to look at that. And then from that level, you know, the editors are going to look at it. So it's going to go through several uh, processes of peer review. So that's what peer review is. We're reviewing from your peers in the field that know and have some expertise themselves about what you're writing in terms of your submission of that manuscript. Right. When you talk about methods, especially if you use qualitative methods, um, that in my field, I'm working on a discourse analysis and I'm using a, a linguistic approach. So it gets quite tricky because I have to explain the software that I work with and what kind of algorithms it uses. Like if I want to be really thorough about what the qualitative method is exactly of how I got to my results and that someone else could maybe reproduce the same thing by going through the same steps, there's no way I'd be able to do that in 8,000 words, which is usually in the articles that in journals that I would publish in, is the maximum amount of words. Um, that's a bit of an issue. But I've seen more and more that these journals are also open to very long appendixes so that you can still explain what the method was exactly, um, but much shorter in the mm -hmm. actual article itself. Um, I just mm -hmm. wanted to put that out there because I feel that also, you know, no one had told me that before. <laughs> I found that right. out myself when I was going over other articles and I was like, oh, 
this would make it much easier for me to write uh, a similar article. Yeah, our journal uses supplementary materials. Okay. So uh, it's, it doesn't get, um, you can have appendices as well. But if you have something even a, more than that that you want to submit, you can do that. And, it, and it's actually published in the online version, but it's not published in the print version because it's actually a little bit longer. But yeah, there are many opportunities that writers can and scholars can have to explain what they're actually doing and uh, give the readers additional context and information about the work that you're submitting and getting published. Right, which would then also make the life of reviewers and editors easier because they can see if they want to uh, how it was done exactly. Also, again, to, you know, have checks and balances. Yes. All right, then we talked about a lot of things. I got a lot of tips about um, dissertation writing, but also about academic uh, um, writing of manuscripts or publications and about the publication process. So I think I got to my last three short questions. Hopefully we can keep that short. Mm -hmm. um, and the first one is, what do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field? My most important contribution to the field I believe is my ideas around diversity and equity within science education. I am standing on the foundations and shoulders of a few scholars before me, but I find that the work that we are doing in science education has not taken on very critical perspectives around race and gender and class and things, of, and things like that within science teacher education. And that's where I think my contributions are coming in is the critical perspectives around science teacher education. Cool. So in addition to reading your book, we should also look into the articles that you have published to see those yes. contributions as well. Yes, yes. All right. Who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? Well, that's, I wouldn't say it's one person, but I will give shout outs to um, some young scholars that are coming up in the field of science education. All right. They sent a very beautiful note to a collective community of Black scholars in the field and did say how they appreciated us kind of laying some foundations for them. And I'm very excited about young scholars that are coming up in the field because there were not that many when I came in uh, into my field of study of science education. So this group of young scholars are, are very strong uh, in terms of what we say in, in the academic world, like very rigorous scholars. And I think their contributions are have already been impactful and I'm just very encouraged by them and that they see me as a, as a mentor to them. Um, so I'm just impressed with the young up and coming scholars that we have in the field. That's beautiful. Nice. All right. And then the very last one for today is an easy one. How do you relax after a hard day of work? Oh yeah, that is an easy one. I watch television. <laughs> I right. like watch. I like watch, watching documentaries. I like watching romantic comedies. Mm -hmm. I like watching just television shows that are comedies, and so that's how I'm able to relax. Or I'll watch Netflix movies or anything like that just to relax. And and that's what I do a lot of that on my Sundays when I'm taking rest. <laughs> you know, so um, yeah. That's what I like to do. That's good. To so really just turn off your brain a little bit. Just watch yes. something easy and interesting. Yes. Sounds very good. 
All right, Felicia, thank you so much for joining me today for our 50th episode. I can't believe it. Your tips have been very helpful, and I hope that our listeners feel the same way. Thanks to the audience again for listening. Don't forget to connect with us. It's What to Do With That on social media, YouTube, and our website. We'd love to hear from you. And you can also connect with Felicia on her website, thescholarmentor.com. And you can check out her book there, Like Words Falling Onto the Page, which is also available on Amazon if you're interested. All right. Great, Felicia. Uh, it was so interesting to talk to um, an editor and also someone who's already established like a professor, right? Most of my guests are actually ECRs or, or more peers who are also working on their PhD or just finished. Yeah. How many doctoral students are you working with at the moment? Probably close to 30. Oh, that's quite impressive. Yeah, it's, it is a lot. It's a lot. And um, they're not all in my field. And that's probably not even counting. Yeah, I have some. I have some doctoral students I'm working with across other institutions. I do have international scholars that will email me and, and, and have developed a relationship with me. And will email me about certain things that are going on with them. And then junior faculty, you know, all over as well. So, um, yeah, a lot. But currently at my institution, uh, close to thirty. <laughs>